Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John, and we are so excited to welcome you once more to the Children's Story Hour. And I have Auntie Sue here with me again. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. I'm so excited to be here again. You know, Auntie Sue, a lot of these stories that we'll hear today are about the mission fields. There are not many missionaries these days, but you and I were missionaries once, weren't we? Yes, we were. Do you like to tell the boys and girls where we were? We were in Fiji. That's right. And in the four years that we spent there, Auntie Sue, tell us about one memory that really sticks in your mind. Well, one memory is when we had a cyclone, and it was a very, very strong one. I don't know what category it would be called today, but it came right over our house and the wind was blowing really strongly. And then all of a sudden it stopped and the sun came out. And then we realised that the eye of the cyclone was passing over our house. And do you remember what you did? Yes, I do, because I had to cut up the swimming pool and nail it all over one side of the house where the wind was going to come. Then I had to rip it all off and run around the other side and nail it on there too. And the wind was so strong that the whole house was shaking and the rain came right through the walls as we were hiding under the kitchen table. Those were exciting times and I'm looking forward to our stories this morning. You might like to write to us. And Auntie Sue has some addresses and contact details. And if you can't write them down, quickly call mum and dad, give them a pencil and a piece of paper, and they will write down the details. Are you ready, Auntie Sue? Yes. You can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, P.O. Box 752, Morissette, 2264 New South Wales, Australia or email us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au You can also check us out at the radio page on the 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au Would you like to pray for us, please, Auntie Sue? Dear Lord, thank you for the many times that you have protected us and watched over us. And we don't know how many times it will be, but one day we will find out. Now, dear Lord, we want to listen to the stories and take them to our heart, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. So let's now listen very carefully to the Children's Story Hour. Hi girls and boys, this is Uncle Alan and today's story is called Sammy the Shin Kicker. I remember him well. I suppose he must have been nine or ten, but he looked like seven and acted like it. What a big opinion he had of himself. He was always right, or so he thought. Poor Sammy. Being an only child with no brother or sister, He had grown up to think that he was the only pebble on the beach 
and that nobody could do anything as well as he. So when he went to school, he thought that he must always be first, that he must always win. Of course, things didn't turn out that way. They never do. There were other boys there who could do things much better than Sammy. This made him angry. And when Sammy got angry, he did a very strange thing. He went around kicking the shins of those who had beaten him. I can still see him doing it. Once he was on the losing side in a game of football. He played hard, but he lost. Then instead of saying to the winners, Well done, you played a good game. He ran after them one by one and kicked their shins. As you can imagine, the other boys didn't like it a bit. Nobody likes having their shins kicked. It hurts. So they began to think what they might do about it. They put their heads together, as you might say, and their heads looked toward the pond on the school grounds. If Sammy kicks our shins again, said one of the older boys, we shall have to teach him a lesson he won't forget. Well, Sammy did do it again. I suppose he'd done it so often and got away with it that he just couldn't stop. Again, it followed a game of football. Sammy was captain of his team and tried his very best to win, but he lost. In fact, the score was 5-0. He was furious. As the game ended, he ran straight for the captain of the other team and kicked him on the shins. It was a nasty, mean, cruel kick, and the other boy cried out in pain. Sammy was just going after another member of the winning team when he found himself surrounded by a group of boys all angrier than he was. Come on, Sammy, said one of them. We've had enough of this. You're going to learn a little lesson somebody should have taught you ages ago. I'm not coming, I'm not coming, yelled Sammy, kicking out in all directions. Leave me alone. But two boys grabbed his arms and others got hold of his legs, and Sammy was hurried downhill to the pond. One, two, three, they cried, and in went shin-kicking Sammy. Splash! The pond wasn't deep, and Sammy soon crawled out again, all wet and muddy. Suddenly the headmaster appeared on the scene. What's going on, he said sternly. Sammy has been kicking shins again, sir, and... and they threw me in the pond, wailed Sammy. They threw me in the pond. Change of clothes at once, said the headmaster. Then come to my office. Sammy obeyed. I don't like the boys taking things into their own hands like this, said the headmaster, when Sammy appeared before him. But you asked for it, Sammy. It was coming to you. You cannot behave like this without getting into trouble. One of the first lessons one has to learn in life is to be a good loser. Nobody can win all the time. Therefore, one must learn to lose gracefully. That's the first essential of good sportsmanship. When you lose in a race or a game, the first thing to do is to congratulate the winner. And the warmer you're well done, the better everybody will like you. To go around kicking people's shins just because you've lost is a terrible thing to do. Just suppose you were to go on like this all your life. 
people wouldn't put up with you any more than the boys who threw you in the pond. Probably you would land in prison. So, Sammy, you had better make up your mind that you have done your last shin-kicking. Yes, sir, said Sammy meekly. And mind, said the headmaster, if I hear of one more incident like this, you will be sent home. Yes, sir. And may I take it that you will try to be a good loser from now on? I'll try, sir, said Sammy. Sammy did try. Often he was tempted to go back into his old bad habit. But when he felt his foot getting ready to kick, he remembered the pond and the headmaster's good advice. And he didn't. and girls, it's Auntie Cecily. I've got another story for you today about our pet possum from my book Libby and His Bush Friends. Chapter 13. Libby Visits the Vet. What's the matter? I said to Libby as he slowly wandered in through the back door and into the kitchen. He lacked the familiar quick step of a hungry possum. He stopped at my feet rather than running up the post and onto the kitchen divide shelf as he usually did. I picked him up and offered him some red apple, but he dropped it out of his mouth after a half-hearted bite. Libby's off his food, I said to Barry. He's not himself tonight. Even though we offered him some of his other favourite foods, he still showed no interest. My heart goes out to animals when they are sick. They look at you trustingly, wondering what is wrong with them, but you can't explain to them what the problem is. You can only do your best to comfort them. Barry examined Libby. He did not seem to have any pain anywhere. He had no injuries that Barry could detect. Libby did not seem interested in running around or exploring as he generally did. Let's keep him inside with us tonight and see if he's any better in the morning, Barry suggested. We carefully lifted Libby into a box lined with soft rags and placed the box on top of the wardrobe shelf. He was still there the following morning, but he was looking worse. The sparkle had gone out of his eyes and his ears were droopy. I tried to coax him to eat some pawpaw, but he just turned his head away. Libby seems to be getting worse, I said to Barry. Perhaps we should take him to the veterinary surgeon on our way to work this morning, Barry said, concerned at the deterioration in Libby's condition. We knew nothing about the problems possums could experience, much less how to deal with such health problems. We needed to get some advice and help from a vet. Dr. Farmer was a skilful vet. He was very experienced with native wildlife. He was also an extremely generous vet because he never charged us any money for treating the native wildlife we brought to him. We had a lot of confidence in his ability to help Libby. We sat in the waiting room with Libby until the veterinary assistant called us into the examination room. 
The room had large, colourful posters on the wall of various kinds of animals. In one corner was a set of scales for weighing animals. The scales looked different from the type people use. The vet scales had a larger base, big enough for large dogs like German Shepherds or Dobermans to stand on. In the middle of the room was a table with a shiny stainless steel top. It was so smooth that animals tended to slip if they tried to walk around on it. What's the matter with this little fellow, Dr Farmer asked as I placed Libby on the examination table. He's off his food and seems to be unwell, but we're not sure what's wrong with him, I said. Your possum looks dehydrated, said Dr Farmer, observing his dry mouth and sunken looking eyes. He gently pinched and lifted the skin on Libby's back. It did not spring back but stayed in the pinched position and only resumed its normal position slowly. Yes, he is quite dehydrated. He obviously has not had enough fluid for his body's needs. If he doesn't get enough fluids, his condition can become serious. Dr Farmer examined him for wounds but there were no injuries. He ran his fingers all over him, looking for any lumps that might indicate that Libby had a poisonous tick on his body. He examined him under his tail and inside his ears and in the pieces of skin between his toes, searching in all the places ticks like to hide on animals. The poison from tick venom is sufficient to kill small animals like Libby. However, the vet could not find any ticks on him. Then, without warning... Libby took a well-directed leap off the examination table, straight up Dr Farmer's arm and onto his shoulder. Possums head for the highest spot at hand, especially when they are feeling insecure. The vet's examination room was a very strange place indeed for a possum. There were lots of unfamiliar smells and noises that may have set off alarm bells in Libby's brain. As Dr Farmer tried to grab him, Libby moved behind his neck and just far enough down the vet's back to be out of reach. Get him off me quick, he cried. Why, I laughed. He's quite tame. He won't scratch you. Get him off me, he repeated. Surely you're not afraid of him, I said, not appreciating the urgency of the situation. Quick, get him off me or he'll urinate on me. I hastily retrieved Libby from the vet's back and returned him to the examination table. Why would he do a thing like that, I asked. Libby can smell the other animals that I've been examining and he will mark his territory with the familiar smell of his own urine in the same way as male cats and dogs do, he explained. Oh, I'm sorry, I said. I didn't realise possums did that. Dr Farmer resumed his examination of Libby. I can't find any ticks on him. I'm not sure what's wrong with him, he said, looking puzzled. He may have picked up a virus. Possums are prone to a certain kind of virus, which can be fatal. I'll give you some medicine to treat your possum with. Handing me a bottle containing a red-coloured liquid, the vet said, this medicine will kill a wide variety of germs. Let's hope it will do the job. We'll see how he goes in the next day or two. If he doesn't improve noticeably by then, let me know. 
What will I do if Libby refuses to take his medicine, I asked. I don't think that will be a problem, he smiled. It is strawberry flavoured, so that should make it easier for you to give it to him. Hopefully Libby will even enjoy his medicine. How much should we give him, inquired Barry. Give him one eyedropper full of medicine every morning and night until it's all used up, Dr. Farmer said, handing me an eyedropper. It's important that he doesn't miss any doses. The eyedropper was a small round tube of glass with a hole at one end to squirt the medicine out and a rubber bulb at the other end. While squeezing the rubber bulb, I inserted the dropper into the medicine. While the glass tube was still in the liquid, I let the rubber stopper go. And this had the effect of sucking the medicine up into the glass tube. All I had to do then was put the glass tube between Libby's lips, press the rubber bulb and squirt the medicine into his mouth. Being a thoughtful and generous man, Dr. Farmer then said, If you prefer, you can leave Libby here for the day and pick him up this afternoon on your way home from work. Thank you very much, we said, knowing Libby would be in good hands for the day. We returned to our car and headed for Barry's school. As we drove along, I thought about what a patient, kind and generous vet we had to help us. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible talks about the importance of these qualities. 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes called the love chapter, sums up in a few short verses how we should live. The Bible says it in these words. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 8, Charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. First part. When we read these few verses every morning and ask Jesus to help us to be like that, we will become helpful and lovable to everyone around us. and girls, it's story time and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. For four years I served in Fiji as leader of our church throughout the Central Pacific and one of the practices that I had was whenever possible I would join with others and go down to the local jail and uh, run afternoon Sabbath meetings for the inmates of the jail. And uh, we had some very interesting uh, incidents with the people there. Some of them were people who were in for life because of murder and uh, all kinds of rough men they were. But uh, they were coming along and we were having meetings there. We had a good group that would attend on a regular basis. Some would come in, some would go out, but a good group were 
regularly there. Then one day we heard a bit of a commotion outside when folk were coming into the meetings and there was this big man there who was uh, arguing with the warden. He said, oh, I want to go in there too. And this man said, no, Sakiusa, you've got to come and work here. You don't want to go there. You're not interested in religion. And, oh, but I want to be, I want to learn about Jesus. Oh, no, we know you're a cunning man. And uh, so uh, he was not allowed to come in. But he persisted and he persisted so much that eventually the warden got tired of him and said, all right, you can go in there. Well, we were sorry he let him in because he would sit right up the back and when the stories get very interesting and the men in the jail there would be listening carefully and wanting to know what was truth, he'd kick the seat over that was in front of him and there'd be a big noise and people would be sprawled on the floor and all sorts of things and up interrupt the program. And this went on for several weeks, but I noticed that each week when he'd come in there that uh, he'd come and sit a little closer and he always listened even though he made a menace of himself by pushing seats over or jabbing somebody in the ribs to upset them. But little by little, he came down until finally he was sitting right down the front and he was enjoying every message that came through. And uh, eventually, he gave testimony to those people there. He said, yes, he said, I may be the heavyweight boxing champion of the South Pacific, but he said, today I'm surrendering to Jesus Christ. And we had the privilege of baptizing him. And what a privilege it was. But before he left jail, as soon as he walked out of the jail, the police grabbed him again. And they took him to court because he and his brother had been thieving, robbing houses and shops. And they had found in their house huge quantities of radios and television sets and all kinds of stuff that they'd stolen from houses. And he and his brother were now to be in court. And as Sakiusa went there to court, he was no longer singing out things at the judge. He sat quietly and listened. But his brother, who was un- unconverted, just as wild as Sakiusa used to be, he was telling him, Sakiusa, sit down, be quiet. Don't say anything. Just listen. And the brother knew it better than to say anything because Sakiusa was the heavyweight boxing champion of the South Pacific. His brother was the welterweight champion of Fiji only. And so he knew better than to say anything against Sakiusa because Sakiusa was a bigger man and a better man. And so uh, when this other young man would want to come into the me- would not want to come into the meetings, Sakiusa would grab him by the collar and say, come on, you're coming in here. And he dared not move while he was in our meetings. Otherwise, Sakiusa would hit him and he knew how to hit him. And that young man too was absolutely thrilled to hear those messages. It took him two years but he too was converted. And the both of them were released from jail together. And they were out from jail, but because of their, their uh, sentences, the fact that they'd been in jail, people didn't want to employ them. And they had difficulty. But they were so filled with the knowledge of truth and the love of Jesus Christ, they wanted to go back to their home island and share it with their families and friends. But they had no money there was no such thing as the dole. There was no such things as uh, old people's uh, incomes and so forth. And so he came along to me and he said, Pastor, we want to go back to our island. We don't have any money, but we need a ship passage to go back. Can you help us? And so we gave them enough money to buy their way back to their home island. 
Well, when they got back to their home island, everybody was so proud of their two champions, the heavyweight boxing champion of the South Pacific and the welterweight boxing champion of Fiji. They were all out to meet him. The both of them were glorified by their people. And they said, when are you going to fight again? When are you going to fight again? And Sakayusa said, on Friday night, down in the marketplace. We'll be fighting there. So the news went round everywhere. Sakayusa is going to be fighting on Friday night. Who's he going to fight? We don't know. But they'll be fighting there on Friday night. And so the news went round. And all week, Sakayusa was just telling them, you'll be there Friday night. We'll tell you about it then. And so when Friday night come, everybody, and I mean everybody, was there. They just loved Sakayusa. He was their hero. He was their champion. And so he went down there and uh, he stood in the corner and they said, who are you fighting tonight? He said, I'm, I'm here fighting the devil for, for Jesus Christ. And they said, what? Yes, I'm fighting the devil. And he got up and he started to preach to them and he taught them all the things that we taught him in jail. And he had made such an impact on them. He wrote to me about four months after we'd sent him up there and he said, Pastor, we've got a company up here that want to become Seventh-day Adventists. We've got nobody to baptize them or anything like that because there's no other Adventists on the island, but they all want to be Adventists now. They want to be like us. Can you send somebody up to baptize us? And so we went up there and we baptized 42 people on that island. Sakiusa and his brother had converted them to Christ. But that wasn't the end because Sakiusa became so interested in spreading the gospel that whenever the church was doing anything, he'd be out there doing it too. I can remember the times of... Uh, in gathering, you remember the times of in gathering when we go out once a year and raise funds for missions. Well, he would go out too, and I always liked to go with him because it was so easy for me. Saki would knock on the door, and when he'd knock on the door, the people would come. Oh, Saki, say, how are you doing? What? Are you? Come inside, and so we'd go inside. He'd sit down there and tell him what had happened to him and so forth like that. And what are you doing now? I'm getting funds for the for the Lord. Oh, yes, we'll give you funds, and so they'd come out with their pockets full of money. But here was Saki who was raising his money. He would travel with us many times when we go on campaigns throughout Fiji. My delight was always to be with Sakiusa because he became a champion for God, not a champion of the fighting world. and girls, Sophie Lee here to read you another portion of the book, Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Chapter 8, Messenger for God. One night, God sent an angel to talk to Ellen. He told her that God wanted her to do a special work for him. He wanted her to be his messenger. Your life as a messenger for God will not be easy, the angel said. You must write down whatever God shows you. You must tell people his words. You must travel wherever he needs you to go. Some people will hate you. Many will tell lies about you. Do not be afraid. God's everlasting love will be with you. He will give you strength. If you are ever in danger, just pray. Lord, send another angel. He will, and you will have two angels to keep you safe. The thought of talking to the Adventists in her own parents' home had frightened Ellen, but the thought of travelling away from home and having people hate her and lie about her terrified her. But this time she didn't run away. Instead, she dropped on her knees to talk to God. Lord, dear Lord, she began, I love you, but you know I can't travel. 
This is the middle of winter. Everything's all frozen outside. And besides, Lord, how can I write when my hand shakes so badly I can't even hold a pen? And what if I become proud and sinful? Please, please ask someone else to be your messenger. The only thing Ellen heard was the angel's words, Make known to others what I have shown you. Ellen went to her father and told him all that had happened. Papa, she cried, tears streaming down her cheeks. I want to obey God, but how can I? Ellen, my child, he said, reaching his strong arms around her thin body. If God asks you to talk, he'll give you back your voice. If he asks you to travel, he'll give you the strength. If he asks you to write, he'll guide your trembling hand. Don't be afraid, Ellen. You must trust in Jesus. He'll never ask you to do anything that is impossible. A few days later, the Adventists met at the Harmon home again to study and pray. Father Harmon told them all about Ellen's struggle. Let's pray for her, someone said. Ellen knelt with them. As she heard their prayers, she felt braver. Silently in her heart, she felt willing to do anything for Jesus. Yes, Lord, I am yours. I'll do anything you ask. At that very moment, a bright light shone on Ellen. For a moment, she saw and felt angels surrounding her. Tell others what I have shown you, she heard them repeat. I will, yes, dear Jesus, I am willing to do whatever you ask me, anything, anything with your help. Ellen's friends were still kneeling, all except one older man who couldn't kneel because of the pain in one knee, but God let him see something exciting anyway. I saw a ball of fire come down from heaven, he called out. It struck Ellen on the heart. I saw it, I saw it. I'll never doubt her again. The bowl of fire was God's way of sending the Holy Spirit to her and showing her that he'd accepted her as his messenger. That very same week, Sam, Ellen's sister Mary's husband, stopped to say hello to the family. Sam and Mary lived 30 miles away in the city of Poland. Before Sam left, he told Ellen that Mary wanted her to come and visit them for a few days when the weather improved. Immediately, Ellen remembered God wanted her to travel for him. I can go now, Sam, she said. Now, Sam asked, surprised, it's bitter cold and all I have is an open sleigh. I promised Jesus that I'd go anywhere, anytime, Ellen said. I'll go with you now. Mother Harmon fixed a quick lunch and heated some bricks. Then they tucked Ellen into the sleigh with lots of blankets and the bricks to heat her little tent formed by the blankets. For 30 miles, the horses pulled them over the frozen snow. At last they reached Sam and Mary's place. A few days later, Mary took Ellen to talk to a group of disappointed Adventists. Ellen knew that God wanted her to tell them about her beautiful vision dreams Jesus had given her. Bravely, she stood up, but when she tried to speak out, her voice wouldn't work. She didn't give up, not Ellen. She began by whispering her words. The people leaned forward to hear her. Suddenly, her voice came out loud and clear. She talked to the people for two hours. She told about Jesus leading the disappointed Adventists up the long path and also about the glorious time when Jesus comes down from heaven to take his children back to heaven with him. After Ellen finished speaking, the people had many questions. Ellen gladly answered each one, then she sat down. Right away her voice was gone and she could only speak in whispers again. Ellen's heart filled with peace. She knew God had used her as his messenger to bring hope to his people on earth.
Speaking of weird and wonderful, come and have a closer look at this big fellow who's just surfaced, Mrs. Tammy. This here's a walrus. Wow. Are they teeth, Ranger Dan? Yes, Mrs. Tammy. An adult walrus has 18 teeth, and the big pointy teeth you can see are his canine teeth. We have them too. Not quite as big, though. The walrus's canine teeth grow into these great big pointy tusks. Can they chew with them? Well, no, because they're too long to fit in their mouth. But they are very important. The name walrus actually means tooth walker because they often use their tusks to drag their bodies across the ice or land. Wow, they are some strong teeth. You're right there. But it wasn't his teeth that I wanted to point out to you, Mrs. Tammy. It was his skin. You see, down under the walrus's skin, God's put a thick layer of blubber or fat. This blubber helps to keep the walrus insulated from the cold, icy Arctic sea. Insulated? Yes. Insulation is the stuff that keeps the cold out and the warmth in. So underneath this layer of thick blubber, this here walrus is as warm as toast. A way to stay warm in the frozen state Insulate, insulate They're safe and warm cause God is so great There's blubber and blubber beneath the walrus's skin God put it there so the cold won't get in The walrus was made by the Lord of hosts So on the ice float he's as warm as toast To say insulate Insulate, a way to stay warm in the frozen state. Insulate, insulate, they're safe and warm cause God is so great. Insulate, insulate, a way to stay warm in the frozen state. Insulate, insulate, they're safe and warm cause God is so great. Ranger Dan, what sort of bird is that? That, Mrs. Tammy, is a tern, an arctic tern. The tern is an amazing bird because it spends most of its life flying. It actually flies from the top of the earth, the arctic, to the bottom of the earth, the antarctic, every year during winter. Wow, that's a lot of flying for one little bird. It sure is, Mrs. Tammy. They fly 35,000 kilometres to be exact, which is the whole way around the world. So they could really see the Earth spin, Ranger Dan. They certainly could, Mrs Tammy. The turn watches the world turn.
G'day boys and girls, Auntie Nat here. It's so wonderful you've come back to read the Bible with me. Have you got your Bibles ready? Today we are going to read about John the Baptist. Now you can read about him in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But today we're going to read the account in Matthew and Luke. And we're going to start off our reading in Luke today. And I'd like you to go to chapter 1 of Luke and we're going to start reading in verse 67. Now this is a prophecy that Zacharias speaks over his son John when he's only eight days old. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So boys and girls, this is telling us all about how John will prepare the way for his cousin Jesus. He was to lead the people's minds from the busyness and materialism of life to the one who would come and give them eternal life. John was dedicated from birth as a Nazarite, meaning he was dedicated to God. He couldn't cut his hair, he couldn't drink alcohol, and he lived a very simple life. Like Jesus, he was not taught in the synagogues by the priests, but would have most likely been instructed by his father when he was young. But as a youth, probably because his parents being aged when he was born, had passed away and he had spent the rest of his time in the desert, as the verse 80 tells us. John lived a simple life in the desert, dwelling in caves in the rocky ravines. In this quiet solitude, God was his teacher. The time spent in nature and studying the ancient scrolls, God was very near to him. Let's now go to Matthew chapter 3 to continue our reading on John the Baptist. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John's mission was one of reformation. He was pleading for the people to repent of their sins and was pointing people to Jesus to come. Let's continue in verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Boys and girls, this was part of his simple Nazarite life. He dressed simply, no expensive robes, and a very simple diet. 
Let's continue in verse 5. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptised by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So multitudes of people flocked to the wilderness to hear John and were moved by the Holy Spirit, confessed their sins, and were baptised by John in the Jordan. Let's continue in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptise you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." Wow, so John the Baptist was quite direct with the priests. The Sadducees and Pharisees were two groups of priests or leaders in the Jewish economy at the time and really didn't like each other. And they have come out to see what John was doing and wanted to be baptised by him. But John the Baptist knew their hearts and knew that they had no deep conviction of their sin. They only wanted to align themselves with John because he'd become so popular so that they could have more influence on the people. The Jewish priests and leaders had lost sight of God and his true character and had become so locked up in their rules and regulations that it was affecting their relationship with God and this was also affecting how they were relating to the people. So let's continue reading in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptised by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So even though they were cousins, this was the first time John and Jesus had met. John, having spent his time in the wilderness, and Jesus in the small town of Nazareth, both of them had lived their lives in relative seclusion. God had ordained this so that no one could say that they had collaborated and pre-planned this. God knows everything. He's so good. Jesus didn't need to be baptised as he was perfect and sinless. That's why John protested. But Jesus did it for you and for me as an example for us. Let's continue to read in verse 16. When he had been baptised, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Boys and girls, if you go to the account in Luke 3.21, it tells us that when Jesus came up out of the water after John baptised him, the first thing he did was pray on that riverbank. Jesus knew that this was the start of his ministry. He was 30 years old and he was praying to his father to strengthen him for the road ahead. And God sends the Holy Spirit to him and also audibly speaks to him. 
God did this in the form of a dove to strengthen Jesus and confirm to John and those watching that this was the Son of God. Boys and girls, I'd just like to say a prayer for you now. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for what Jesus did for us being baptised in the Jordan, even though he didn't need to be, Lord, because it was a witness to us. We thank you for the life that Jesus led on this earth as an example for us. And I ask, Lord, that you be with the children at home. Bless them, be with them, help them, Lord, to understand your word and help them to take it to their hearts. We ask you be with the adults and the grandparents as well. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hello boys and girls, it's Dr John here and I'm reading another one of the jungle stories by Eric B. Hare and this one is called Starting School. After we had made friends for our dispensary all through the district, the people began to ask when we were going to start a school. I had a list of 50 children who could come, so I begged the committee to let me have a teacher. All right, they said, we'll let you have Peter. So Peter came back with me to open a school at Kumamang. I'll never forget that time. We went around to all the villages and told them, Monday morning, next week, at 9 o'clock in the morning, we are going to open school. Don't forget. Don't forget. Again and again, we told them, oh, yes, they would remember, next Monday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, next week, Monday morning at nine o'clock in the morning came and Peter and I opened the school. We opened the front door, dusted off the table, and Peter sat on a chair behind the table. And then we put a piece of chalk in front of the blackboard. Then I took out my watch and walked up and down outside and waited for the students to come. But nobody came. So I said to Peter, what shall we do? He said, I don't know. Perhaps they think it'll be tomorrow. I said, well, then we'll start school again tomorrow. So the next morning at nine o'clock, we opened the door, dusted off the table, and Peter sat on a chair behind the table, and I put a piece of chalk in front of the blackboard. I took out my watch and walked up and down outside waiting for the students to come. But nobody came. I said to Peter, what shall we do now? He said, I don't know. Perhaps they expect us to go and get them. All right, I returned. Tomorrow we won't open school, Peter, but we'll go and get some students. The next morning, we crossed the river and walked six miles to a village where there were two children we were sure would come. They had been friends of the mission for a long time, so we went there first. Sure enough, the children were all ready for us. Their books were wrapped up and their clothes were in a little bundle. We knew you would come for them, said the mother. That's why we didn't send them yesterday. 
Well, I said, I'm glad they are ready now. Come along, Tonpei and Natu. But, interrupted the mother, just a moment, Tara. Tonpei has been learning to read at the Buddhist priest school. He'd better go for his letter of transfer. It won't take him long. I waited ten minutes and Tonpei didn't come back. So I said, Mother, why doesn't Tonpei come back? Mother answered, I don't know, Thara, but I'll go down and have a look. So she went down to the Pongi Chuang, that was the name of their school, to have a look. I waited ten more minutes, and she didn't come back either. So I said, Auntie, what can be the matter? Why doesn't Ton Pei come back? I don't know, Thara, she said, but I'll go down and have a look. So she went down to the Buddhist Pong Yi Chuang to have a look. I waited ten more minutes and she didn't come back. So I said, Big sister, whatever can be the matter that all of them do not come back? She said, I don't know, Thara, but I'll go down and have a look. Well, she didn't come back either. So I said to Peter, what shall we do now? I don't know, returned Peter. Well, I said, I think I'll go down and have a look. So I went down to the Ponky Chuang to have a look. Now, I didn't know as much then as I know now about Pongis. If I had, I wouldn't have done what I did. But you know what I did? I went straight up into that preschool with my boots on. This I learned afterwards was a terrible thing to do as everybody is supposed to go to the priest's house barefooted. And as I went up those steps, there stood that old priest simply terrified at such rudeness that the white man should come into his school with his boots on. I thought he was keeping quiet so I could find Tom Bay. So I said, where's Tom Bay, boys? And they said, there he is. So I took him by the hand and said, don't be frightened, Tom Bay. You don't need a letter of transfer to come to our school. Come on, mother. Come on, auntie. Come on, sister. You don't have to stop here. And down the stairs we all went. When that priest saw me going off with his boy, his tongue was loosed and there was such a cursing as I have never heard before or since. I wish that after I was dead, I would be born again with two horns. That's what he said. And he wished me many other things too terrible and too dreadful to mention. But I didn't mind. I had Tonpei in one hand and nor two in the other, and away we went to school. The next morning we opened school. We opened the front door and dusted off the table. Peter sat on a chair behind the table and we put the piece of chalk in front of the blackboard. Tonpei sat in one corner of the table and nor two sat on the other. I said to Peter, now Peter, you teach school, and I'll go around to the other villages, and I'm sure to get at least six more, because you know it is always hardest to get a start, but after you've made a start, the rest is easy. I came back in the evening. Hello, Peter, I said. Have any more students come today? No, Tara. How many did you get? Oh, I didn't get any either.
What's the matter? said Peter. I don't know, but we'll do the same tomorrow. Tomorrow we are sure to get some. So tomorrow we did the same thing all over again. I landed home again that night, tired and weary, with no students. And can you believe it? We did that for three weeks. Peter taught school all day with two students. Well, I looked around and looked around the district for more pupils. What was the matter? The priests had told it all around the district that we were dortectors. That's a animal, half animal, half human. And that after we had collected enough children, we would feed them up and fatten them and then eat them. No wonder they were frightened to send their children to our school. Well, what could we do? Boys and girls, sometimes you'll come to a place where you've tried your hardest to do something and there's only one way left and that is what Peter and I did. We opened the Bible and we got down on our knees and this is what we said. Oh, Lord, you have said that this gospel is going to be preached in all the world for a witness, and here we are. We're trying to do it, but we can't. We don't know how to. Oh, Lord, you've said that your word will not return past you. Now, God, please fulfill your promise to us. Please fulfill your promise to us. And do you know? I have never heard of anyone's getting down on his knees and claiming the promises, but God has opened the windows of heaven and poured down a blessing. Right then, something happened. I don't know what it was, but along came two students, then three more, until we had ten. Oh, it seems so good to have ten. We had worked so hard for them, and do you know what we did? We taught them to sing. Then we put them in bullock carts and took them around to their villages. Some sang soprano, some sang alto, I sang tenor, and Peter sang bass. When those jungle people heard us singing, they were delighted. Their own children, such clean faces. No, the Tara did not eat them. And the next year, without any trouble, 23 children came to school. We did the same with them. We taught them to sing, put them in bullet carts, and took them around holding open-air meetings in the village. The next year, 35 children came, and the next year, 57, and the next year, 65 came, and the next year, 75. Bright boys and girls, young men and women. And besides this... We had three other schools bringing our total number of students up to nearly 100. That's the way the Lord fulfills his promises when we put him to the test. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. 
And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD, Frozen Chosen, on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Give by sharing sacrificially And if you give your best You very soon will see It is better to give than receive Give by praising all the good you see Give by sharing sacrificially And if you give your best You very soon will see It is better to give than receive You heard more blessed to give than receive, sung by the Chatelier family. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of the Children's Story Hour. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour. (laughs) 